1: Hi everyone, good afternoon, and welcome to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. We're doing something super special today um, in that Sally, Ian and I are all here together. Um, We are in Long Beach, New York, and we're with our whole team of admissions educators. So our finance educators are not here this week, um, but all of our admissions educators are here and um, for me this is the highlight of my year we get together as a group twice a year and um, really regularly during the week i'm always talking to my colleagues behind the scenes um, and we get together as a team at least twice a month um, on teams unfortunately not in person because we're all over the country Um, but uh, this is My Like I said, my favorite time of the year. I just love to meet with my colleagues and hang out with them and talk to them. And um, So as I mentioned, Ian and Sally are here. And Sally, I guess, what's your favorite part of uh, this meeting that we're having this week?
2: It's always hard to choose when I'm asked this kind of a question. And of course, I feel like being snarky and saying the Indian food (laughs) last night. But actually, I mean, hearing Elise uh, Kranz, who's been a guest on our show, talk about recent trends is always fascinating for me, um, and I always really appreciate that. But also just hearing from our colleagues, which I know, like, everybody has a slightly different perspective. We all worked at great institutions, but they're all slightly different. You know, there are commonalities and differences, and so hearing those perspectives are always super valuable.
1: And Ian, what about you?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, we have such an impressive team. And it's uh, it's really awesome to get a chance to see everybody at their best in these presentations. It's also, we have a lot of new people here that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. And so the chan- getting to see them on their feet, thinking really smartly, having great points and perspectives to offer, both in a professional context and also in a personal context, we have so many great conversations. So it's... It's a really, really great opportunity for us to get together. It's exhausting. I'm quite tired. Uh, this is the last day, um, but it's, it's wonderful. I wouldn't miss it.
1: Yeah, I am uh, second to the tired. I would consider myself an uh, extroverted introvert. And so for me, there is a moment in these meetings where I just think I need to go somewhere that, where people are not. Um, And uh, it was very unlikely. Last night I was in my hotel room at 8 p.m. And I um, normally I would go down to the bar and I didn't do that last night. And uh, I woke up this morning thinking it's probably a good call. But what did I miss? Um, One of my favorite moments actually was uh, we were talking about test optional and some of the schools that are not test optional. There aren't that many of them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few. But... um, and we were talking about Florida in particular, and I was sort of over in my corner being snarky, like, oh, it's not the school's decisions, it's coming from the top. And then someone else pointed to Asia, who worked at the University of Florida, and said, "Asia, can you provide some perspective? And she said, yeah, it's really bright futures. So it's the scholarship. They can't make those decisions without that data point. So that was a incredible reminder to me that, I have my biases and my opinions, and um, they aren't always entirely based in fact. I try to base them in fact, but um, that one wasn't. And so that was one of the things for me that stood out as a highlight because we have, like you said, this incredible group of people who know so much and a lot of their insight and knowledge is different than mine and how much that adds to my um, so, we have talked about so many things in our three days together. And I will tell our listeners that we have set ourselves up in the ballroom where we've been doing our meetings, and people are going to be probably moving in and out of the room. So, if you, I don't know that you're going to hear background noise. I don't think this microphone picks it up, but just in case. Those are our team members, so we apologize if there's a little bit of extra noise. Um, One of the cool trends that we talked about yesterday was direct admissions. Um, And Sally, you brought that up as something you would love to talk a little more about. So let me hand this over to you and, and share with us this new development.
2: So I just found it fascinating because I'd heard of it at UC Riverside. I mean, Ian probably like UC Riverside would sort of historically, if they didn't fill their class, they would reach out to other, um, you know, like they'd reach out to people who had applied to other UC campuses and hadn't gotten in, which I thought was great. UC Riverside is a great school. I think it's strictly a geographic disadvantage or a perceived disadvantage in terms of why they don't get filled. Um, But it was fascinating to me, and I think it's a great development for um, students that colleges will actively be reaching out to them. Um, You know, if they start to complete the common application, if they have the basic data in there, Um, You know, we learned that colleges will reach out to them and potentially, like, offer admissions. Um, You know, some examples were some great places like Montclair State in New Jersey, Virginia Commonwealth, even George Mason um, was on the list. So... um, You know, and and I think they really see it in the Chicago area schools. They're doing it specifically to reach low income and first generation students. Apparently, the whole thing started in Idaho. I know I'm like just rambling off facts (laughs) here, but I was like, wow, this is so great. So I don't know if anybody has anything to add to that. Yeah, I,
3: I think it's a really cool development. I mean, one of the things that a lot of students ask us uh, when we have conversations with them is, can I even get into a college, right? And that question is so hard for a high school student to answer. So these colleges are basically saying, we're going to answer that question for you with very limited information, and we're going to make it very easy mm-hmm. for you to apply and ultimately have the opportunity to attend here. What a, what a great idea. You know, we, when we talk about admissions, I mean, it, it's always like it's impossible to get into places these days. What do students have to do? And one of the things we try to do on this show is talk about the wide range of options and strategies that schools have to recruit students to come into their space. So that was a great highlight. And, and you know, to your point, Beth, we, this room is really big. Uh, and we have quite a few experts here, all of whom we know personally. But we have such broad coverage now of so many different spaces. And instead of having to guess what's going on out there, we can talk to someone who worked for an institution who can say, this is, this is why we do things that way. So yeah, it's, it's been eye-opening. And as we continue to grow, we're filling in even those, those few spots where we can't see the, the whole picture. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a really great point um, for our listeners who are thinking direct admissions. That sounds amazing. Um, what we did learn yesterday is that this is typically going to be po- a possible through your school counselor. So if you're intrigued by this concept, definitely connect with your school counselor. As of right now, there are 14 schools on the Common App that are uh, that are doing this direct admission. My guess is that um, we're going to see a lot more um, because schools the schools that are participating are finding that it's really successful for them and to be clear what the school will say to you is you will be admitted we just need you to fill out this form and send it in and then you'll be admitted so it's not a oh you should apply it's not marketing it is we want you send us this form you you are in Mm -hmm. and that is news right that's something brand new so another thing that we talked about um, trend-wise was test-optional. Um, that is something we talk about in this show all the time. Uh, well, not all the time, but it comes up frequently. It's certainly something that families are asking us about all the time. And um, we, we did some data. They looked at some data around, you know, who actually is test-optional? Um, are there any schools that are not? completely, no testing, um, and who's not optional. And we're not gonna list all of those schools right now, but Ian, I wonder if you had some thoughts about your takeaways from that data we looked at.
3: I, first of all, just having the numbers is awesome. Being able to see what things look like and, and have that proof be in the data is really, really great. It started with a conversation about learning loss. And one thing that was really interesting was seeing how test scores for the SAT and the ACT have actually gone down especially as a result of the pandemic. And so when you think about that in the context of a test optional policy, my first thought is, well, this is great for students because while they're in this position where they've got some learning loss, there's a silver lining, which is that testing might not play as significant a role in the process. There are. We talked about the unsweet 16. I think yesterday yes. the the 16 schools that definitely still require testing. They are mostly for regional scholarship reasons or the military academies as well. So they're are usually some and Georgetown, right? We always have to say and Georgetown. You know, it's the what like the exception in that space. Call out Georgetown. It's right. Georgetown. Um, but it, it's. I think it's really cool to see how students can be empowered to think about testing as something that could potentially help their process and something that they don't necessarily need to have. Now with that said, one of our colleagues, uh, Ryan Kreps, did a great job of unpacking some of the enrollment data for different institutions from the common data set, which we've talked about on the show in past episodes. And we were trying to see, can students really be test optional? What is the percentage of students coming into a class who did not submit their test scores? And the numbers are really striking, it's not, consistent across all institutions. There are places where very low percentages of students were test optional, and there are places that are similarly selective with very high percentage of students who are test optional. And so I think this story is still being written in many ways, but having the numbers is really adding some clarity there.
1: Tali, I'm curious if you had takeaways on the test optional in particular.
2: Well, notable to me is that I think he contrasted 2020 with 2021 and so we're now into the 2023 and I think I just think that like a lot of the colleges that weren't so used to it will be adapting at this point right so I have a feeling that his data like if we looked at it for 2022 because his was 2020 2021 so 2022 2023 I'd like to really keep monitoring that data and I think we'll find that colleges are adjusting like the first year when you're thrown into something you're like oh this isn't good and we really need this data and uh and then you start realizing that you can make you can really develop a class this way so this is this is my theory on it um because you know the schools that have been test optional for years don't seem to be having much problem and we've got some incredible schools that are test free at this point like caltech i mean you don't get more selective than caltech really i don't you know yeah that's at the top echelon. So that was interesting to me. I'm really disappointed, Sally, that you didn't say
3: Reed first uh, as, <laughs> as one of those amazing schools that's test-free, but Reed College. Uh, yes, Reed which is, College. Have you heard of it, Sally? I
2: have heard of it. Listeners
1: who might be new, both Ian and Sally are Reedies, yes. so they are... <laughs> you know wanting to pump up Reed and with good reason I love Ian and Sally and if that's who Reed turns out then by god I love Reed um it was notable that 85 schools in the country are test free meaning they do not consider scores at all you can't send them or if you do they will be tossed and not part of the consideration they won't even look at them um including the UCs um three of the schools at Cornell, um, which is probably one of the most selective in addition to Caltech, Reed, as you mentioned, Dickinson College, Pitzer, those were a couple of the others that I wrote down. Um, and uh, sort of notable amongst the 16, the non-suite 16 that are not test optional is MIT. And so, you know, MIT and Caltech we have sort of like up here is very similar um, tech schools on opposite coasts. One has one perspective on this and the other has a completely different one and that that is interesting. Um, I also thought it was uh, notable that both um, Duke and Princeton had two of the highest rates of students admitted submitting scores whereas uh, Johns Hopkins and Cornell had two of the lower rates of students submitting scores. So it is certainly not the case that every single highly selective school is approaching this in the same way. And I think that is really important for people to note. Um, there are schools where test optional, it truly they're finding that they really don't need those scores and other schools where maybe they're still leaning heavily or we don't know, we don't know what the makeup of the uh, applicant pool looks like. And it could simply be that the students not submitting scores also, are their weaker applicants, and the students submitting scores? Their applications are incredibly strong, right along with those scores. It's not like those things were always separate. In fact, they frequently went together. So, um, I, I, my my real takeaway here is simply that um, I, I think if depending on if you are going to go test optional, you need to be thoughtful about your list. Um, we. St- continue to see that at the large state schools not submitting scores can really be problematic Um, and my take on that is really largely that they just don't have the staff Mm -hmm. to effectively assess an applicant without that data point because their assessment is largely based on you know the rigor of the curriculum what the grades earned and then those test scores and if you take away one of those they're almost like ah I don't know what to do here. Um, so anything to add on the test optional front? Well, not quite on
3: the, the test optional space, but you you were talking a little bit about not having the staff at these big universities. and. We were just talking in some of our small groups yesterday around dinner and then around, you know, at the bar as well, is that admission offices are really overtaxed right now. Um, They're in a position where they have so many applications that they're trying to review. There aren't a lot of people who have the expertise and the knowledge to be able to do those reviews. And that really dovetails with something we talked about quite a bit yesterday, which is trends that are, Uh, occurring with respect to student college majors and in terms of professional opportunities, growth of different kinds of of, um, professions and jobs and roles. And Sally, you brought this up as something that would be really interesting to talk about, But and I think it's worth returning to the changes that we've seen in different college majors, which we have felt pretty strongly as a part of the conversations that we have with students. There were like the top five increased college majors in terms of what students are applying for and the five that have contracted the most uh, over the last decade. And it's not great news for us in the humanities, certainly. Um, We've got an English major here, a philosophy major, and a history major. So we're a dying breed here. Uh, We are very much on the outs. We still get to do podcast hosting, I suppose. Um, but, but what were your thoughts on that, Sally? Because I thought a lot of that information
2: was really striking. Well, I mean, I, I think it wasn't me who said this first, but the fact that education was declining, too. I think that's almost more concerning. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, I mean, I don't blame the students for not going into teaching. My nephew is a history major who's thinking about becoming a teacher. And while on the one hand I'm like, good for you, on the other hand... I'm thinking, that's a tough profession, and I worry about him. So I don't blame people for not wanting to go into education. But come on, think about what this means for us as a society. Mm -hmm. You know, people want better teachers, and then, frankly, they trace them out of the profession. You know, they don't pay them enough. There's a lot of hassle. There's a lot of politics that have come into it that didn't used to be there. So, um, But I also just think... I, I. and I just want to I want to point out too that I'm actually one of the people on this team who works a lot on alternatives to four-year degrees. I'm super supportive of people who want to go into the trades. And I do think there's some students where a more theoretical education doesn't really work for them. So maybe business is a better major. But this devaluing of history or English as a major means that we're losing certain perspectives, a certain kind of, I think, ability to step back and like empathize and learn more broadly about societies, our own and others. And to me, that is very concerning. And it sort of seems to be going along with I'm just going to delve into politics but not too far. I do think that it goes into some of the polarization that is happening. Yeah. So uh, to me it's it's it is a concerning. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I mean as the child of two educators, it's certainly um Depressing, I guess, to say Mm -hmm. to see that education had contracted the most. I we all shouted out English. We all thought English would be the number one smaller, smallest major, or the one that had contracted the most. Um, But it turned out to be education, and that's not great for us for many reasons. Starting with the fact that we're an education company, (laughs) and um, you know, and for those who haven't heard, we have a Horizons program here at Bright Horizons where we will literally. Hire you, you can work here at Bright Horizons in our child care centers or in our, you know, um, child education centers, which is really a better way to think about it. We're teaching young kids. My son, who's currently in college, went through Bright Horizons Education Center. And um, you can earn your degree and we will pay for it. Uh, and it, it could be that more and more people are feeling like, well, education. I, It does feel like this change coincides with this idea that there are professions that are going to pay better than others, that it's all linked. I am here to tell you that while we do this work, we do it for a for-profit company, we're not, we do decently well. My husband, who was a history major and who went to a regional college in the state where we grew up, um, he has a very high-level job in a tech company. You know, the fact that he was a history major, it's not something necessarily that is part of his everyday job, but it is certainly the ability to read, write, and think is something that he draws on every day. It's certainly something I think that the three of us draw on every day. Um, I'm going to get off my soapbox on that front um, because uh, there were, but The last thing I will say on this is that we all want our kids to have great teachers, but then we don't want them to become teachers. Does that really make sense? Okay. Um, So what was striking to me was that the number one fastest growing major was not computer science, although it's notable that there has been a 245% increase in computer science majors in the last 10 years. It feels to me like every student that I talk to who wants a highly selective school these days is totally focused on computer science. Um, But what were some of the other... Were there other surprises in the growing... I don't think any of us were surprised by any of these. Who wants to talk about that? Sally, you're up.
2: Well, I was actually surprised by one of the majors, which was biology. Because I think of biology as being... I mean, maybe it's because of the association with pre-med. People think that's the major you do for pre-med. But biology is one of the broader liberal arts and sciences. It's like physics or math, which, frankly, are great places to start your career. Absolutely. Teach you how to think, et cetera. But, like, I, I was like, why biology? And <laughs> as much as biology is, yes, completely useful. But, again, not really that different from history in terms of, like, you know, maybe you might end up getting a graduate degree or you'll just be able to pivot into business like you can do with history or English or philosophy. So that was that was the surprise for me. The rest of them, health professions. Yeah, I thought computer science would be first and then health professions, engineering and business. None of those were a surprise. (laughs) Those were not surprising.
3: I think the thing with CS and you hear this a lot like people say you got to teach yourself you got to learn to code right there's a lot of conversation about learning to code and I think one thing about CS that not every student I talk to understands is it it really is more of a math discipline in many ways there is a, a mode of inquiry in terms of how you're solving problems how you're addressing those problems now I wish I could talk more to students to say look learning how to code learning how to write code how to be involved in technology is not something you necessarily need to major in. And sometimes majoring in something else is going to give you the things to care about, right? It's gonna give you the perspective, the insights. Just knowing how to code isn't helpful, it's a tool. Mm-hmm. You gotta to use it to build something. Mm-hmm. You gotta know what people want you to build, what's gonna help the world, right? And so I think it's, it's a misconception that people have that if I wanna go into technology, I have to be a computer science major. But in fact, I think there are a lot of great counterexamples of people who end up in technology through indirect paths, whether that's philosophy or history or biology, and then they get into that space. So it, I, I'm very interested to see whether there's a snapback in some way. My The optimist in me kind of hopes that we recognize the need for education. Somebody's got to teach the computer science majors, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there is an understanding that it's not just about knowing how to write code, it's also about... Having these perspectives on the world,
1: mm-hmm. Ian. If only you had a soapbox on which you could tell <laughs> students about seems this. To be one over here, right? This yeah. is no. I, well, I, I'm teasing about the soapbox, but you are like, I wish I could talk to students about this. I'm like, well, here you have a platform for it. Um, I, I think, too, you know, we the fact is we live in a capital, capitalist society and, and how you feel about that, I like it. Um, I think it's probably one of the things that makes America what it is, for better or worse. Um, what will we will probably start to see is that as education majors decline and the population of teachers available to teach our kids declines, it will suddenly be something people pay more for and there will be more opportunities in that world. And therefore, we will see more students go into education. I also think, is it a little bit of a misnomer? You can major in history and then teach history. So do you need to major in education in order to be a teacher? Not necessarily. So I guess, you know, we should take a little heart in that fact that, you know, if you major in bio, you could end up being a bio teacher. Um, Maybe that's not what you envision, but maybe that's what ends up happening. And just for clarity's sake, um, we thought... Computer science would be first, health professions was first, and that's a really broad category. So I think that uh, my sense is that encompasses doctors, nurses, you know, physical therapists, um, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, everything. And actually, we did look at the professions with the greatest need in the next 10 years And nurse practitioners was at the very top of that list, which is an interesting thing. Not doctors, but nurse practitioners. Um, And number two, which was totally out of left field, in my opinion, was wind turbine service tech. (laughs) All right. And you don't need a college education for that. And there was another one that was um, number nine on the list, and that was solar photovoltaic installers. And I think that's like solar panels, Mm -hmm. right? Also, you don't need a college degree for that. The rest, there were a lot in that computer science space, data scientists, um, information security analysts. That's a big one. We've certainly, um, we have a whole big department of that at Bright Horizons. Um, Statisticians, um, web developers, medical and health services managers, um, logisticians, logisticians, how do you say that word? I don't know.
3: Yeah, logisticians. Logisticians? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. physicians,
1: uh, physicians' assistants and um, physical therapy assistants, which is kind of weird. Like, why the assistants? Why not physical therapists? I don't know. Um, but those require less schooling and maybe that's something that um, we're seeing as a society is that we need more people to do this work health-wise and maybe we don't need every single person to have to do eight years of school followed by whatever specialty you're going to go in and we just need people to get there a little bit more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, what? else what are some other one big thing we talked about as i say what else and now i'm going to throw it out the what else um we talked about this concept of applying sideways and it's based on a blog that chris peterson um wrote when he was working for mit in 2010 i don't know if he's still there but he wrote it in 2010 um and ian what What was your thought as you sat there um, thinking, first of all, tell us a little bit about what does it mean to apply sideways?
3: Yeah, uh, applying sideways, there's a question that I often ask my students when they say, what should I be doing? Whether that's academic, whether it's outside of the classroom. And my response to them is, let's imagine that you can't tell admission offices what you're doing. Let's just say this, whatever you're going to do this summer is not going to be on your application. Are we in that space? Good. What do you want to do? What are you excited by? What do you enjoy? What are you good at? And getting students to think less about building towards a particular outcome and instead focusing more on the process, because that's how you're naturally going to be excited about what you do. It's how you develop your authentic interest. And so we had a great conversation around how we can encourage students to do this and getting students outside of the sense of what is step A, B, C, and D on this path to MIT or University of California, Berkeley, and instead, what's the right path for me? And then as I establish that path, how do I figure out which colleges it's pointing to? And I think a lot of the questions that we get when we start working with families is focused on, we wanna get to this endpoint. how do we get there? And we, through conversations with students, help them to see that, you know, we're not trying to push back against the idea of having goals. But we're trying to say that the better way to achieve your goals is really to think about what you're uniquely good at and then how you can cultivate that talent and those interests in service of your application. And the great thing of this, this blog post is, is at the end of the day, this is helping your application. You are making yourself a stronger student, even if you're not consciously working on that directly. Do you, Sally, do you have conversations with students that are like this often and what kind of language do you tend to use?
2: Oh, I mean, all the time, because I, I mean, part of sideways, like just the sort of blunt part is that it is so hard to get into these institutions that even if you do everything perfectly, you're probably not getting in. Right. And I'm pretty blunt with students about that. And I'll say, look, you are super impressive. You will very well be in the conversation, um, which is a big compliment. That's the biggest compliment that I can pay you the biggest compliment is not you'll probably get into Stanford because you almost certainly won't just based on the percentages. So I said, so what you need to do along the way is do things that you enjoy. Um, the other thing that I talk about is just let's take who you are and what you're doing and figure out ways that so we can maybe elevate it a little bit. We're staying true to you, but what's the next step that you might not have thought of But we're still in this space that you enjoy, that you get a lot out of. And so that's kind of how I approach it. And that's how I approach it when I'm talking to the parents, too, where, you know, it's often with them that, you know, um, in particular, that they seem to want a very clear recipe. Do this, then do this, then do this. Does she need to do a sport, you know, etc.? And um, so I'm like, let's start with who your son is. Let's start with who your daughter is. What do they enjoy? Okay, how can we build on that? What are some fun things that they might do? Things that they might... Because that's how they're going to be excellent at this, is if they enjoy it. If they don't enjoy it, they honestly probably won't be excellent at it. And I I mean, I'll be honest, I'm pretty clear. I, I am pretty direct with them if a particular activity probably won't help them get into a particular college, because sometimes they didn't really want to do that activity anyway, and then, and then I can kind of relieve them of that. But I'm also very clear, if you enjoy this, like if you're an average athlete, but you get a ton out of being that athlete, and you enjoy it, and you love your teammates, I say, you should keep doing it because the colleges will still value that teammate part of it. It's just not gonna be distinguishing if you're going for one of those highly selective colleges.
3: One of the things that uh, our colleague, Christine Sawicki actually pointed out that um, you know, trends that we see across students that are successful in getting into highly selective schools is they tend to care about something that's bigger than themselves, something outside of themselves. And I think that's a great thing as a parent to start to have conversations about early. Mm-hmm. It's not, how does this help me? It's how does this help someone else? How does mm-hmm. this help my community? How can I help to make an impact in this way? And so, you know, when Sally's talking about elevating activities that students are doing, it's about expanding the impact. Mm-hmm. It's saying if you're not a great athlete, but you love being a great teammate, awesome. That's because mm-hmm. you're supporting others in that space. Maybe you can become a youth coach or you can be a referee. So. You know these are great conversations to have there's not that clear path and I think that's where people get frustrated but we find these conversations wonderful and exciting and rewarding because you get to be really creative and thinking about it you just got to be comfortable with the fact that there's not a clear answer Mm
2: -hmm. well and one of the things that I love about my job and and I hadn't really thought about this before as being such a positive but one of my one of the the parent of one of my early students at college coach said one of the best things that happened in my office was just my talking to him about what he cared about and then reflecting back to him his accomplishments things he hadn't thought of as accomplishments i was like no this is a valuable thing that you're doing this is this is special, this is wonderful, the colleges are gonna to wanna to hear about it. And these were things he just hadn't thought about. Like he was thinking in these narrow categories of, I'm not the captain, I'm not the whatever, but I'm like, no, but you have this, you have this, you have this. Let's make sure it's reflected. And. Ultimately, his mother said he found that so much more valuable than even I mean, he went off to Tufts. He did great. He's he was super happy there. Um, you know, I like I like cyber stocked him and he's like, you know, doing very well as an engineer, you know, but but his mom said that ultimately he felt like I have these things to offer. And I, I hope not everybody can work with one of us, but I hope that as a parent, you can help your kids do that and I know that they're getting some of that from their teachers too but the teachers have a more siloed view of them oh you know it's their that's their job so like as a parent or maybe there's a family friend who can help kind of take in the entirety of who this young woman is or this young man and say look at these talents that you have you will bring these forward into the world and you will add so much and and I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of the best parts of my job. I just love doing that. And I hadn't been aware that, like, I was effective at it. So that was always really nice.
1: <laughs> one thing that I've been thinking... Um, I know that there are places where they will say, oh, you love playing football, but you're terrible at it. You should stop mm-hmm. doing that. Flee. Mm-hmm. You should flee that place. If, if, as a parent, if someone says that to your child... I would be very concerned. <laughs> I'll just be f- frank with you. I mean, I, you got to let your kids be who they are and do the things that they enjoy. And they will wind up somewhere that's great for them. And they will be successful in life. And if you are taking away things that you love that you may never get a chance to do again, you know, because someone told you that, oh, well, no one's going to care about that. So don't do it. I can't think of anything worse. I Literally, I cannot think of doing something worse to my child than doing something like that. Um, I, authenticity. It's all about authenticity. It's all about... High school cannot be solely a path to college Mm -hmm. and that for me is what speaks so loudly about this concept of applying sideways if I had a dollar for the number of times I've said to a kid do what you love and the rest will follow and like you like what what can we add what more can you do in this area that you love Mm -hmm. not only is it more impressive from a college point of view from an admissions point of view but you're gonna want to do it Mm you know, and now I'm sure there are parents out there saying, well, my kid doesn't really want to do anything. Well, that's a whole other (laughs) conversation for another day. I hear you. I know there are other options there, but, um, I just think that, uh, that, that is the answer. If you want to know how can my kid be super competitive at, you know, the highest levels start with what are they good at and what do they enjoy? And if you start there, the likelihood of success increases. You know, the, number, the odds are in nobody's favor. You know, when you're looking at schools that are admitting fewer than, you know, 4%, 3%, like you have to kind of assume, wow, this is going to be tough to make this happen. But you are going to be in a far better place if the things that you focus on are the things that you enjoy doing
2: that's the best place to start anything
1: ian you look like oh sally Look, well,
2: i just think we need to remember the emotional side of this too if you've done everything just to get into college a particular college and then you don't get in your entire high school career feels like a loss and and i've i've worked with students who are in that position because the, everything they did was to get into college this was not my advice But this, I just want to be clear, but this is what they did, whereas the students who did things that they enjoyed, sure, they were disappointed if they didn't get into College XYZ, but were they depressed, were they, didn't they take it as a major blow to who they were, no, because they were rooted in their love of theater or, you know, the fact that they were a passionate advocate for voting rights and they knew that these things had value because it had value to them.
3: There's also an element of just of of practice, right, where when you get, at some point, you have to start asking questions about what you enjoy. There's not always this sense of I'm on this path, I'm doing this particular thing. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of students, when they get to college, are lost because now that clarity of what am I working for is taken away from them. And one of the things, you know, I didn't have a great college application experience in terms of the outcomes or the process. (laughs) I was very excited by it, but it did not go well for me. Uh, But I had very much cultivated things in high school that I was enjoying. And so when I got to college, I was able to identify the things I liked and pursue the things that I liked. I had that sense of empowerment in that space. And I think that is a practice. That's something that you have to work toward. And if students don't do that in high school, how are they gonna turn it on when they get to college to be able to say yes to an opportunity, to try something that they enjoy, to join a club or activity that doesn't seem to be connected to any particular outcome? It's tough. And, and so we need to use high school to, to practice life in many ways, it's not just high school.
1: Well, and the one thing that is screaming in my head as you guys are talking is mental health. Are we all paying attention to the mental health issues right now on college campuses? Are we paying attention to mental health issues on kids in high school? This is not just social media, people. This is also this like intense focus on where are they gonna get into college and we have to do all the right things and what are those right things and they're nothing that you like, so let's do this instead. You know, I, I, um, the, the biggest thing I probably have gotten out of this job as a parent is the ability to step back and say, oh, wait a second, there's a lot of amazing colleges out there where my son could go and be happy. By the way, not a perspective I had when I joined here 16 years ago, almost 17 years ago, and and that has been invaluable for my child, who is not me, who Mm -hmm. never approached school the way that I did, who didn't approach doing things outside the classroom the way that I did, and I could see that that would have been a real, that could have been a real problem for us. Um, And instead I had this great job as a way to kind of help me see like, oh, (laughs) there are bigger things and there are more important things. Um, We are getting close to the time when our team is gonna join us in here. And we may, I'm gonna see if we can't get them saying hello to everybody um, in some way, but um final thoughts from both of you as we wrap up our we're on our last day of meetings we actually have a whole full day ahead of us we were thinking about recording this yesterday at five and the three of us were like (laughs) no "No, can't do it as we all heard i was i was in my hotel room at eight which you all don't know me in that way but that is not a normal thing for me um so we're here we have a full day ahead of us final thoughts ian we'll start with you
3: wow okay okay um first of all, I just want to say I'm very excited about today's programming. We're going to be talking about transfer admissions, and we've got a couple of our, our newer team members from University of California, University of Florida, so that's going to give us a really great perspective on the public school transfer process. We're going to be talking about supporting students with disabilities, which Sally is going to be leading that session uh, with Mary Sue Yun, who's, who's another one of our colleagues. We are just covering so many different student pathways, and, and it's a great reminder of how big this job can be, even though in the context of talking to a kid, it's just that one-on-one. Um, I wanted, uh, yesterday I was standing at the bar. Beth wasn't there. Beth's usually there. It's fine. That's okay. You don't always have to be at the bar. But it was really cool because we've got a, a DJ Mian who we just hired in the last couple of years. I realized that she worked at Reed College when I was a senior, when I interviewed her for the, uh, the admissions job. And when she left Reed, I started in her job the very next year. I took over the territory for her. And it was like, oh, wow, there's this like, connection. Now, um, 15 years later that we are working together again. And then I looked over to the other side of the bar and standing there is Abigail Anderson. And when I left Reed, Abigail moved into my office at Reed and took over my travel territory and it was just so cool to be you know I don't think our listeners know but we are we are friends and colleagues there's a lot of love in this room when we get together there are hugs we spend so much time together virtually we have this opportunity to get together uh, in in physical space and um, it's just a really it's a special week uh, for us all I think.
2: One of the things that I think also keeps us so connected is that we all share a desire for, like, what's right for the student, right? Like, if what you want to do is to get into an Ivy, et cetera, we'll talk to you about what that means. But ultimately, that's not our personal goal. Our personal goal is to help you find that match, to help you find the right place where you will thrive. And the consistency of that has been great. I mean, when I have parents who come to me who say, I want you to, like package my son, and, I, and I've, I've had that, package my son to get into one of the top 20 schools. Um, or it has to be a school I've heard of. I know that I have the backing of my supervisor to say, I don't do that. I'm not gonna package your son. I will help him figure out how to elevate what he's doing. I will present his best self, help him present his best self to the colleges. That I can promise you I will do but I am not going to package him. And sometimes they hire me anyway, which is pretty great. Like, I don't know why sometimes, I guess it's because their son is like, yeah, I want to work with her. She's not going to make me do stuff I ain't doing. Um, But just the support that we have in that and that we all share that ideal is always like, I just wanted to say that, that, that this isn't just us on this podcast. This is the whole room and it's backed Well, Beth is, you know, Beth's the big boss, and she supports it, so there you go. (laughs)
1: Uh, I couldn't support it more. I mean, I, I it's how I think about it in my own practice. The other thing that always strikes me when we're all together is our different approaches to this work um, and how we connect with the students, how we connect with the parents, and how we have the freedom to do that in different ways. And while we all are really great at adjusting our... Um, styles to fit the people that we're working with. The core of it all, we each have an approach that works best for us, and um, and we I love that about this team. So one thing that our listeners may or may not be aware of is that I am super active in recruiting and bringing in our new educators, and that is probably the one of the most important things that I do because college coach is this team right we without this team we don't exist Um, we are not one person we are we are just a collective of really amazing people and we do connect all the time remotely so we're looking for a certain personality and actually that that goes along quite well with the work we do directly with students and parents because we work with them remotely. We have to be able to connect with them remotely. So this teamwork, this camaraderie that we develop and um, has been going on in the almost 17 years that I've been here um, is so important to, to that, um, to the success of our work and to the success of us working together. So anyway, all of this to say that when I'm talking to people who want to come and work here, a huge thing for me is the desire... To, um, a huge thing for me is the ability to, um, connect with others and to want to, right? We don't hire people who sit in their little silo and work with their families and, you know, close their computer at the end of the day and they've done their job. We hire people who want to be in teams and chatting and, you know, want to put something silly in the My Happy Place section or, you know, want to answer the question when I type in, hey, admissions, I have a student who's interested in this major, and we're thinking about summer opportunities, and I was thinking X, and do you have any suggestions, right? And they're going to hop in there and give me like five, which actually happened two days ago. And um, they were five really great suggestions. So That is just, when I think about what makes College Coach so special, that is what I think about. That and the ability to have this nice soapbox where we can sit here and talk about it. Um, all right. We are going to wrap up this portion of the show. I don't, we're not going to have much more of the show, but, um, I want to thank Ian and Sally for being here today. Um, as always, I mean, this is the first time we've recorded together. Very fun, very fun to be in the same room um, and to be all together. And thank you to our listeners for listening today. We are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. And yeah, I don't even know what we're talking about next week. We'll worry about that next week.